Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Acton, Acton, and uh, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, here in Malta. Um, And this is really where I began my 20 years of studying, writing, and talking about the Second World War. I remember arriving here so clearly on a sort of late evening, well, it was dusk, I think, uh, and I got to... um, I got to Floriana and to Valletta just in time before the last light went and I hurried over to the Grand Harbour, the upper Baracas, looked down over Grand Harbour. And really my knowledge of Malta was one of black and white photographs from the war and it was amazing to see this place that I'd read so much about already. And there it was in the kind of faint colour, saturated colour of dusk, but looking absolutely one and the same that I knew from all the photographs. A very, very thrilling moment, I have to say. And I've been coming back here ever since. It's a place that sort of gets into you, sort of touches the heart a little bit. And it's amazing. I think, I think for a lot of Brits, actually, and for a lot of Americans here as well, and, and Germans and many from all over Europe all come to Malta because it's a lovely place to visit. And just utterly transformed since those dark days of 1942. I'm splashing out this time and uh, we're staying at the Phoenicia, which is now 
absolutely lovely hotel was originally it was there before the war it was owned by the Strickland family uh, who also owned the Times of Malta the amazing newspaper that kept going every single day of the war even during the darkest days of the siege they managed to kind of print at least four pages anyway the Phoenicia is a is an absolute institution here in Malta it's got a wonderful club bar at the back where the walls are lined with black and white photographs of Christina Ratcliffe one of the I suppose celebrities of Malta during the siege and there's pictures of Noel Coward and sub British submarines and destroyers and pictures of Grand Harbour and men manning anti-aircraft guns all pictures from the war mostly um, in 1942 and 1943 on the eve of the of the invasion of Sicily the Phoenicia was an absolute flea pit I mean terrible place I mean just like everywhere else in Malta kind of suffered from the ravages of the siege there's a fantastic account of by an American journalist, war correspondent, writing about the Phoenicia in late June 1943, just before the launch of Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. And he talks about the, the lack of running water, the lack of electricity, the appalling food. And it does sound a sort of dismal place, sort of bits of the bits of the landing sort of open to the elements where bomb damage is struck. Now it's, gosh, it's completely transformed, as is, I have to say, the market square. Uh, which is where I'm standing at the moment. Now there's sort of fancy great fountains and everything's paved in beautiful marble and limestone. And quite a different place from when I first came here 20 years ago, because back then they still had the kind of the stinky buses, the traditional buses sort of spurting out gushes of thick exhaust. And there was a market here. It was sort of absolutely alive with hubbub. And now it's all very shishi. And completely transformed thanks to largely I think EU money but I'm now walking across the square and I'm going to the Royal Air Force Memorial and when I come here I always like to come here and pay my respects I suppose to those who fell during the siege but one name in particular and that's Raoul Dado Longley chap I wrote about extensively in the book I first wrote on the Second World War Fortress Malta he was a very young guy and, and you could see that he was, by his letters, I had his letters, wartime letters from his niece lent them to me. And he looked so fresh faced. You know, he was a complete boy man. Hadn't completely grown up at that point, but came of age, I suppose, fighting to defend Malta in 1942. He came over in March, but started flying hurricanes. And then when the first Spitfires arrived, was one of the Spitfire pilots in 249 squadron. Raoul's letters sort of reveal a very, very young man who's sort of growing up fast. But what's rather tragic about Raoul was never settled after Malta. He finished his tour, I suppose, in about July 1942, if I remember rightly, and then uh, was posted back to England, never settled, couldn't really sort of come to terms after the intensity of living and fighting in Malta. Um, and re although he could have spent the rest of the war being an instructor, he actually wanted to get on photo reconnaissance, but something just didn't go quite according to plan. Ended up being sent back out to the Middle East and ended up in a, in a fighter squadron on the invasion. Was hit during the invasion on, the, on July the 10th, 1943, during the invasion of Sicily. Came down, crash landed, was badly hit on the head and was then transferred to a hospital ship, which was then subsequently sunk. And so he drowned and he's remembered here on this memorial, which is a great big column with a golden eagle on the top and the names of all those around the base of it and all those who gave their lives and it's a staggeringly huge amount really and very sad you know and 
I suppose when you're writing about someone so intensely and you're reading their letters that were written, you know, on the day that you have this incredible immediacy. Also, the characters just really shine through, I think. And that was certainly true with Raoul. And I really felt I got to know him. So it felt, it sounds ridiculous really, but it felt like a sort of personal loss when he eventually died. The other thing I remember about him was his handwriting was quite loopy to start off with, but by the time he died, it was a sort of tight, tight sort of scrawl. And I think anyone looking at that today would probably assume that he was suffering from some kind of combat fatigue. That's certainly what my conclusion at the time anyway. And all very sad, but nice there he is. Um, and it's nice to see him and nice to see his name commemorated here. Well, from the Air Force Memorial, I can look right and there's the Church of St Publius, uh, which is Floriana. Floriana and Valletta kind of sort of merge. Um, the only thing that separates them is the newly kind of um, smartened city walls around Valletta put up in the 16th century during the Great Siege, the first Great Siege, I should say, when the, the Knights of St. John were holding out against Suleiman the Magnificent and the Ottoman Empire. But St. Publius was um, struck on the 28th of April, 1942, at 7.50am. And it's got two clocks in its little towers, either side of its facade. And one of them still says 7.50am, or at least it certainly did a few years ago. I can't quite tell from where I'm standing, but that was certainly the case for many years. You know, the history of Malta, it's long, long history. It's kind of absolutely everywhere, even though the place is sort of smartening up by the minute. And I suppose not a lot of people know about just how bad it was during the siege. But in April 1942, at the height of the, of the second major Luftwaffe blitz. OK, so the Italians were involved as well. The area, uh, the Regia Aeronautica, the Italian Air Force was involved. But Primarily, it was the Luftwaffe that was causing most of the damage and pressing home the attacks the hardest. And in April 1942, it had become the most bombed place in the world. Now, obviously, that was a dubious honour that was about to be taken over by many others. But, but plenty of places um, usurped that. But this is a really small place. I mean, it's, it's only sort of 17 miles by six or something like that. It's pretty tiny. And the intensity of those raids was just extraordinary. It was something like 9,500 Luftwaffe sorties alone in April 1942, and 1,300 tons of bombs dropped uh, on the island just in that one month. And in total, there were more bombs dropped on Malta than during the entire London Blitz. You know, so it's a, it was pretty intense. And as you enter the city walls and go into Valletta, what is now Republic Street, but back in the war used to be called King Street. You now see a very fancy new building that's just been built. But just ahead of it is the remains of the Opera House, which was hit on the 7th of April 1942 and never ever rebuilt. They have actually put up some of the columns and it's sort of, it's used for concerts now and they're kind of sort of slightly al fresco. And on one level, it's a, it's a nice thing that it's kind of been left as a memorial and another, it's sort of a bit of a shame that it hasn't re been rebuilt. But at least it's being used, and I suppose that's something. But it's obviously standing witness to the siege that happened all those years ago. And just in front of it, really, is Wembley Stores on the corner of Scott Street, what used to be Scott Street. And Wembley Stores, I remember when I first went to interview Tubby and Margaret Crawford. Tubby was the second in command on HMS Uphold, the most successful Royal Navy submarine of the war by some margin. 
managed to sink something like 128,300 tonnes of Axis shipping during its career. And Tubby told me that, said, oh, is Wembley store still around? We used to go there and get these particular type of Maltese biscuits from that place. And I remember when I first went there, I went into Wembley stores, there it still was, asked for the same biscuits. I was very proud to bring him back a packet of the very same biscuits that he used to eat, first during the war and then when he was posted here later post-war. And here it is, it's still here. One of the few things from the old days that is still here. And you know, you can look all the way down Republic Street, King Street as was, but I'm turning right up alongside the Opera House and you absolutely do get a sense of what this building must have been like and how magnificent it was. And uh, up into Castile Square, where there are famous photographs of queues of people waiting for the Victory Kitchens, because although the Luftwaffe Blitz ended at the end of, well, the beginning of May 1942, they were needed elsewhere. They were needed in North Africa, those Luftwaffe planes. Went over to support Rommel's offensive on the Gazala line that was launched on the 26th of May 1942. The problems for Malta didn't, didn't end there because, of course, it was besieged and it was running out of fuel and it was running out of food particularly. And things were incredibly bad. It's hard to stress just how awful they were. And actually, long after I wrote the book, I was given access to a number of papers by Simon Cousins, who's an amateur historian here on Malta, but uh, one of the key people on the island that sort of upholds the memory and legacy of those years. And he showed me a whole load of papers that he'd picked up at a flea market which had belonged to the medical director on Malta. And you can see to start off of their, you know, the notes in 1941 are written on full scap, and even in 1942, and then they're being doubled up. So they're turned upside down and the blank page is used because just isn't enough paper. And then there's kind of half pages of full scap torn in half and used again. I mean, you know, that is how desperate it was. But on those pieces of paper contain the most incredible stories of terrible hardships and privations you know things like whatever you do don't flush the loo you know because that's a waste of water that they don't have wash all bandages don't wash your hands you know these are the sort of basic rules of elementary hygiene and yet so desperate was the situation in Malta in the early summer of 1942 we're talking about sort of May into June and then in July midsummer as well that these simple things just couldn't be undertaken because the situation was so bad. And I think actually the situation was far worse. And I gave credit in the book that I wrote way back 2002, 2003. So pretty desperate, to be honest. And from Castile Square, I've turned down Merchant Street, which used to house the Times of Malta, owned by Mabel Strickland, who was the editor and a formidable lady and an absolute sort of scion of sort of Anglo-Maltese society. And then you can turn, literally the first, I mean, it's a really long straight road. You can see the sea at the end. Valletta's built on a grid. Very, very distinct Maltese architecture. They always have these sort of lovely stone windows that jut out from the flats and endless churches. And then you can turn into Melita Street and there just above, still carved into the, uh, you can still see it in the, in the plaster work on, the, on Super Dry, on um, opposite Malt, Malt Co Lotteries. There's a sign saying Victory Kitchen and it's very distinct, um, red, white and blue. So it's Victory Kitchen written in, painted in red on sort of white and blue. And the Victory Kitchens were absolutely cursed. Everyone hated them. There was just so little food that this was a way of um, ensuring that, that everyone, it was sort of rationing effectively. So what you do is you hand over part of your rations, your ration book, and in return, you'd be fed from a 
from a soup kitchen. But as the months wore on into the summer of 1942, so the standard of the soup got worse and worse and worse. And it wasn't really soup. It was a kind of sort of form of gruel with sort of horrible bits of God knows what in it, cabbage and occasionally a little bit of gristle or something. But it wasn't enough. I mean, the, the level of calories that people were taking on a day-to-day -day basis was way below kind of what they should have been. I mean, if people were getting 800 calories a day, they were, they were pretty lucky. And obviously that's just not enough. Um, it's not enough for a child, it's not enough for a woman, it's certainly not for a, a man doing physical work as well. So, you know, it's, it's hard to overestimate just, and stress just how bad things were in the summer of 1942. And it's why these convoys that were coming in were so incredibly important. I'm now walking on and I'm gonna head up to the upper barracas the scene where I first arrived in 2002 and looked out over Malta and Grand Harbour. So from Melita Street, I've come back up to Castile Square and I'm now at the Upper Baraka Gardens. What a place of wonder it is. You know, they're so peaceful. They're so beautiful. Little olive trees, a fountain, sort of quiet place of contemplation these wonderful sort of limestone arches. And then there it is. This is, ah, oh, just takes me straight back to that first visit. And there is Grand Harbour and the three cities. It's the most incredible view. And as a view, it is largely unchanged over the past sort of 150 years. And I'm looking down now towards Frenchman's Creek, which was where the illustrious came in in January 1941 after the illustrious Blitz was absolutely hammered by the Stuka dive bombers who were going into an increasing box barrage of anti-aircraft gunners that were sort of covering every part of the sky. So while it was terrifying to be on the receiving end, it must have been absolutely terrifying being a Stuka dive bomber as well. And you can see the, the three cities as they're known, these three fingers that jut out into Grand Harbour and you can see the old gun emplacement. And I also remember being here in 2005 when the Spitfire and Malta turned up and thundered round the corner and hurtled down Grand Harbour and I was actually higher than the planes were, I was looking down on them. But this of course, this is a scene where so many of the convoys from the Siege of Malta came through and by the summer of 1942 the situation was desperate, which always goes back to the failed convoy of March where only three ships managed to get in and then weren't unloaded round the clock. It was bad weather so the Luftwaffe didn't come and for some reason a plan just hadn't been put in place to unload them 24-7 which is just insanity. And this was only discovered when one of the RAF station commanders, I think from Luca, came, sent, sent a whole load of his men down to hurry up the spare parts they needed, discovered there was nothing going on. All the Maltese stevedores didn't want to work at night and there just hadn't been any plan put in place. And of course they could have operated with searchlights because the cloud was so low that the Luftwaffe couldn't attack and particularly not so at night. And as a consequence, then the cloud lifted and the two ships the Pampas and the Talibut that had been in Grand Harbour were then bombed and sunk and only about 5,000 tonnes of stores were recovered which was nothing near enough. It was an absolute calamity and the blame fell fair and square on the governor Dobby and also his three service chiefs and the lieutenant governor and it was just an absolute disgrace really. Hugh P. Lloyd who's not my favourite person who was the um, air officer commanding RF Malta really tried to dump Dobby in it. The truth is, is, he was as culpable as anyone. And it was a sort of a terrible thing to do, really. And it just goes to show how desperate the situation was that they're all starting to sort of blame each other. But as a consequence, then a next convoy that was mounted in June, that struggled to get through as well. 
just couldn't couldn't make it. So by August 1942, although the the Blitz had been defeated, it was kind of last chance saloon really. And so they mounted Operation Pedestal, which was the largest escorted convoy ever in the history of the Second World War by any side. There were 14 ships and only five managed to get through. And the most crucial one was the SS Ohio, which was a former Texaco oil tanker. And the Maltese were very Catholic, very religious people, loved their feast days, but the absolute number one feast day was the feast day of Santa Maria, which was known as the Ferragosta in, Ita- in Italy, of the 15th of August. Every year was the feast day of Santa Maria. And Santa Maria was the national saint of, and remains the national saint of Malta. And this terrible convoy, this sort of absolute battered and bruised from start to finish, and particularly the, the Ohio, this incredible um, tanker that sort of soldiered through, even though it was sort of dead in the water, it was abandoned twice. A Stuka dive bomber absolutely crashed on its deck, but fortunately the whole thing didn't explode. And eventually two destroyers managed to sort of saddle leave, straddle either side of it, and another one led it, and they inched their way in on the morning of the 15th of August. And you could see this ship out at sea, kind of going at walking pace. It sort of seemed like it was never, ever going to get big enough to actually reach the harbour. And then amazingly, about sort of just after, I think it was about eight in the morning, they managed to get past the breakwaters that I'm looking at now over Grand Harbour and inch their way in. And it seemed like half the population of Malta, if not all of it, was lining the barracas, the lower barracas and where I'm standing here on the upper barracas, cheering it in. And I mean, you just couldn't make it up, could you? That really this was the moment the siege was lifted. Well, entirely, but it was when Malta was saved, I suppose. Um, On that morning of the 15th of August, 1942, on the feast day of Santa Maria, the national saint of Malta. And how could anyone think that God wasn't smiling on the little island at that particular moment? And, you know, there's photographs of those scenes of people waving flags and cheering, you know, the sort of ecstasy that kind of pain and suffering was to a large extent kind of over from then on. And from then on, further convoys did manage to get in and the tide was really turned because at the end of August, Rommel made his last attempt to go on the offensive in North Africa launching the Battle of Alamhalfa on the 31st of August 1942, that just two weeks after the uh, pedestal convoy came in. And by that time, RF planes operating out of Malta and ships were all attacking access convoys again and showing why Malta was such a strategically important piece of land. It might be tiny, but it's bang in the middle of the Mediterranean, just 60 miles south of Sicily and blocking the path of any access convoys and supply lines to North Africa. And I'm, <laughs> as I'm finishing, this tale of the siege of Malta. I've got incredibly stirring Battle of Britain music in the background blasting out of the uh, speakers from above the upper barracas. So I'm going to stop here. But what an amazing story that was. And the truth is, is that, you know, thereafter, Malta's life kind of got a little bit easier. A number of spitfires arriving on the island got greater and greater. You know, the, the, in October 1942, Field Marshal Kessering made one last effort to try and neutralise Malta. It completely failed. His air forces were absolutely hammered, and that was the end of the matter. Um, and from then on, a year on, of course, for Operation Husky in July 1943, Malta was a veritable aircraft carrier, effectively, <laughs> stuffed full of fighter planes and bombers and what whatnot, um, all ready for the, uh, for the invasion of Sicily. So quite some turnaround. But it is amazing to stand here again, just as I did all those years ago when I first came to Malta and look at the three cities, look at Grand Harbour, look at Valletta and, and, and just see all this history just sitting in front of me, this sort of 
largely unchanged landscape. Well, I'm now at the Malta Aviation Museum at what used to be RAF Tikali. It's now got a, uh, a sports stadium here and it's completely built over. But I think well into the 50s and 60s, it was a, an airfield. And the museum actually reflects that. It's got lots of Cold War stuff. I'm looking at a C-47 Dakota and various jets. There's a meteor over there. And um, more importantly for me, a hurricane as well, which has been painstakingly restored. The people that run this, Ray Polidano, his wife, Mary Rose, their son, David, and other enthusiasts, people like Frederick Galea, they've become old friends of mine. And you know, whenever I come to Malta, I was hot-footed over to, to Carly to see them and see how they're getting on. And it's amazing what they do. I mean, Malta always had that kind of entrepreneurial and make-do and men spirit, which I suppose is typical to any island, because you, know, you just have to. But this hurricane I'm looking at now was just beautifully restored, largely by David Polidano, Ray and Mary Rose's son. And it's just incredible what they've managed to do. And I think I'm right in saying the only real reason why it's not airborne and doesn't fly and it's a static display only is because they just don't have the, they would never get the paperwork and insurance to get it airborne, but it's perfectly done and done in the correct colors, of course, as you would imagine. And of course, you know, while it's lovely seeing this hurricane, you know, hurricane really was responsible for why Malta had such a terrible time of it and why the RAF struggled through 1941 and the first part of 1942 to make any headway against the Luftwaffe and indeed the Regia Aeronautica as well, the Italian Air Force. And that's because the Hurricane, for all its many virtues, and it does have virtues, fantastic gun platform, pretty manoeuvrable, can take a lot of punishment, all those sort of things, has a pretty slow rate of climb. And that's the big rub when it comes to operating over Malta because planes coming from southern Sicily, enemy planes, access planes coming from southern Sicily only take about 15 minutes to get from southern Sicily to Malta. What you really want to do is intercept them before the bombers can reach the island and drop their bombs and disperse the bombers and put them off their aim and all that kind of stuff. And the only way you do that is by getting enough height so that you can maneuver around the sky, get the sun behind you and dive down. Height, and position of the sun as what and speed is what you really, really want. And of course the hurricanes, because of their slow rate of climb, simply couldn't get up into the air quick enough. So what was needed was Spitfires, and it is an absolute crime, and I know I've banged on about this before, but it was an absolute crime that Spitfires were not sent early in 19, by 1941, at the very earliest. And the truth of the matter is, is that Hugh Pugh Lloyd didn't call for them. He called for more, for more fighter planes, but he didn't specify Spitfires and no one sent them. And there was this sort of home turf prioritization, which meant that Sholto Douglas and Lee Mallory, who were kind of running the show of fighter command by the end of 1940, could keep a hold of it and keep a hold of those Spitfires and not send them overseas to the Middle East, where they were desperately, desperately needed and not least over Malta, because of course the Spitfire did have a much faster rate of climb than the Hurricane and could easily have been able to intercept enemy planes coming from Sicily had they been here, but they weren't. And that meant that the fighter pilots that were sent over here to defend Malta had an absolutely terrible time of it. And my dear old friend, Tom Neal, who was a Battle Britain ace, shot down something like 13, I think, in the Battle Britain, um, was sent over here in 1941. He said the closest he'd ever come to punching a senior officer was when he had a conversation with Hugh P. Lloyd. And Hugh P. Lloyd said, what do you chaps need? And 
Tom Neal said, Spitfire, sir. And these hurricanes are absolutely useless. And Hugh Pugh Lloyd basically said, words to this effect, a bad workman blames his tools. And Tom said, that was the closest I ever came to punching a senior officer. And I can completely understand his frustration and why he so nearly decked Hugh Pugh, but he didn't. And so continued to have a long and distinguished career in the RF as a result. But it's always good to be here and it's amazing what they do. And if anyone ever comes to Malta, you really, and you have even just the slightest interest in aviation and the battle for Malta, the siege of Malta, this is a place you want to go because it's, it's, it's really run by passion, hard work and incredible dedication. And what they've done is turned this museum into something really very, very impressive indeed. It's a wonderful place and they're wonderful people. Anyway, the long and short of it is, Spitfires did eventually turn up in March 1942, a handful of them, um, not very many, and they were soon knocked out just because of the weight of numbers. There just wasn't enough of them to make a, a serious amount of impact. And so by April 1942, the absolute height of the Malta Blitz, you know, when the Opera House was being hit, Church of St Publius was being hit, you know, all the airfields were being absolutely hammered, Luca, how far, Dicali here. You know, on two days alone, there weren't a single fighter plane ready to fly. And there were, there were any planes at all in April 1942, in the first part of, first half of April 1942 anyway, was largely because of the kind of absolute sterling work of the ground crews and the fitters who were managing to kind of make miracles happen and somehow, you know, by butchering from Paul to feed Peter, were kind of getting a few planes airborne. But there was sort of, you know, there were a number of squadrons on the 186 squadron, 249 squadron, for name but two. Um, and they started knocking out the, you know, painting over the squadron markings because there weren't enough planes to go around for one squadron, let alone two or three. So it was desperate, desperate times. And then 47 Spitfires came in towards the, uh, and the third week of the month of April 1942, but no plans have really been made for their arrival. Um, and lots of them were destroyed on the ground. I think within something like a week, there were only nine left, something like that. Most of them destroyed on the ground. And that was again, entirely the fault of sort of poor planning. But then when they were flown in again on the 9th of May, proper plans were put in place so that the moment they touched down, the Spitfires were immediately refueled, rearmed, fresh pilots ready to jump into the cockpits and take to the skies again. And the following day, the 10th of May 1942, was really the day that the air battle for Malta you know, turned. It was an absolute tipping point because that day, something like 60 odd were enemy planes were shot down, nearly all by Spitfires. Following month, I think, when was it? it was early July, I think, that Hugh P. Lloyd was finally sacked. And Keith Park, the hero of the Battle of Britain, commander of 11 Group in the Battle of Britain, came over. And within about 10 days, he completely transformed the fortunes, sending Spitfires out in advance of the island, exactly the tactics that should have been used back in 1941 had there been Spitfires. Uh, and intercepting the um, enemy planes with big wings, effectively, multiple squadrons attacking en masse out of the sun with height on their, on their side and absolutely hammered the, um, the Italians. And that was basically it. So seeing this hurricane here so lovingly and painstakingly restored does give me slightly mixed emotions, I'm not going to lie. Well, I'm now in a second hangar where there's a Spitfire and a Harvard the remains of a fairy swordfish in just absolute bits all over the place. There's also something, two very, very special things here. Um, the first is a chair that was, um, belonged to the captain 
of the SS Ohio, the tanker that valiantly made it against the odds in Operation Pedestal and arrived on the feast day of Santa Maria on the 15th of August, 1942. And this chair was in the captain's cabin. <laughs> Just amazing. It's a sort of, it's got a felt seat, a sort of curved back. It's rather nondescript really, but what an incredible piece of history it is. It's just sat here at the back of the hangar. I think I need to have a word with, with Ray and co and suggest that they might want to put that in a uh, glass cage or something because that is something that's very, very special. I'd have thought that's priceless to someone. Anyway, amazing to see it there. There's maps and pictures all over the place. I've got one of these maps hanging up in my house, actually. Um, an original map of Malta from the war. And what a different place it was then. Nothing like as built up as it's become now. Um, there's an anti-aircraft gun, there's an old truck, beautiful truck actually. But the bit that I'm really interested in is the bits of Hurricane. Um, and this is the Hurricane that belonged to Alex Mackey. And I think I've mentioned before this letter that I came across when I was first researching the Siege of Malta, way back when, nearly 20 years ago. And I was at the Imperial War Museum and I came across this letter and actually there it is. It's um, I think I sent a copy of it over to um, over to Ray, and here it is. Here's a, a facsimile of the letter written on the 10th of March, 1942. He was killed in January, and it says, "Someday, when this cruel war is over, I'm going to visit Malta and see where my boy is buried." Ah, gets me every single time. And when I first came over here, I was recounting this story to Ray and Frederick and people. And they said, oh, come over here, come over here, come and have a look. And they showed me a bit of Hurricane, and this was from Alex Mackey's Hurricane. And he was, yeah, it was a Sunday, the 25th of January, 1942. And he was in the night flight, the Malta night flight. And he'd taken off for an air test. And six Messerschmitt 109s had come in under the radar and absolutely hammered him just as he'd taken off from Dakali. Had absolutely no hope whatsoever. And he tried, there was a beautiful valley just the other side of Rabat and which is a sort of town city above Dakali, next to Medina. And he tried to circle around and get, fly through this valley and clear the far end of the valley and get out over the Dingley Cliff so that he could bail out. And he just failed. He hit, a, he hit a wall and the wall is still broken where his hurricane hit. And I remember so clearly that day coming here to Malta for the first time and recounting the story of the letter, them showing me the bits of hurricane, which I'm now looking at right now here as I'm describing this, and then hot footing it into a car and all of us piling off to see the crash site of Alex Mackey. And it's amazing because so many planes were shot down during the war over Malta and most of the crash sites have completely gone most of the aircraft have gone forever, but by a curious piece of strange serendipity, the one plane that still survived, all the bits of it that survive, and the crash site you can still see, is Alex Mackey's, which was that first bit of research I did all those years ago. So it means a lot to me, but what a sad story is a little bit of the, of the canopy. I mean, when he, when he crashed, he, uh, he was actually, Alex Mackey was actually flung out of, out of his harness, some about 20 meters, something like that broke most of the bones in his body I would imagine and he was rescued by people from the church on the other side of the uh, valley who'd seen him and they came and rescued him on a ladder and an ambulance eventually turned up but it's a terrible story really and just one of the many people to have lost their lives over Malta during the siege but of course a young boy I think he was only 19 at the time who meant the world to his family and and they lost him of course so um, I've just hooked up with my old pal Ray Polidano, who's taken me 
to the workshop at the back of the museum. And this is normally off limits to, to punters. <laughs> um, appropriately, there's a big plane going over at the moment. But this is where you're doing a sea gladiator, restoring yes. it. And yes. your son David's doing most of the hard work. This is 5519 that, yep. that crashed on the end of July of 1940. Wow. So um, was it one of Faith Open Charity? Yes, this is charity. This is charity. So it was, was being flown by Peter Hartley. Yes. He was sort of ejected from the aircraft. <laughs> Um, well, and, voluntarily? And no. <laughs> he, he got badly burnt, but luckily he fell in the sea. So okay. I suppose the, the first Duncan in the sea helped him survive. Right. He was taken to like hospital. Because of the salt water. Yes, he was taken to hospital up in Imtarfa. Which is just behind us here. Uh -huh. And then he uh, was repatriated back to England, right. where he met his uh, future wife. Yeah. Uh, we actually met his daughter. Oh, and, really? and she said it was a good thing that he was shot down and burned because otherwise he wouldn't have met my mother and I wouldn't have been born. So it's just, that's the aside. But we had found a bit of panelling um, of it. It was picked by a trawler. Right. So we have like. So a, where, where, where was it then? So it crashed on land? It, no, no, it's in, it's in it the, sea, the sea, somewhere outside Grand Harbour. Oh, we've been looking for it for a couple of years. No, no, finally um, we got the help from Timmy Gambin, from, mm -hmm. he is involved with Heritage Malta yes, yes, yes. And, and the university. Mm -hmm. And he's looking for it. Maybe we'll find more remains. Right. So at the moment, we just got this panel. So it's basically serving like um, Adam and Eve when he right. um, borrowed the rib off of Adam and, and produced <laughs> yes. Eve, this sort of thing. So. Well, there is that Spitfire that's been restored from one rivet, isn't it, famously? Uh, yeah. Depending on which way you look at it. But, so, but there's lots of bits around here, Ray. I mean, yeah, what, what's all this over here? On, we're on... getting like, uh, like this stuff over here. Mm -hmm. That's the... Uh, Dock kennel that's made out of plywood. Right. We got loaned that from Sweden, from a museum in Sweden, yeah. along with these um, cockpit doors and the um, sliding hood. Yep. And we've even got a, um, a pilot seat. Wow. Which we. Uh, so where did all, so, so I'm looking here. That these look like wings. Yes. These are a mix of wings that came from Norway. They were given to us by the RAF uh, way back, maybe a good 15 years ago, I think. And the others that got fabric on came from Finland. We've exchanged them for a cheetah engine. They came off originally a Swedish um, gladiator, but apparently it was, I think, one of two that crashed. Right. So we managed to get these wings. We had enough wings to uh, put together, uh, static-wise, to put on fate in the War Museum, but that right. never happened. So we're working differently. Now we've got a uh, cooperation from Heritage Malta, so they're allowing us to go and measure the, uh, all the things that we need and the gladiator. Because it's, it's a gladiator, but it's a sea gladiator, which right. is the only one. Yes, so it's they, got, well, they, they would belong to the Navy, didn't they? Yeah. They were all boxed up and they unboxed them and... It yeah, became faith, open charity, and, and then they had to board. they had to on. Uh, uh, how many there were? Were there five of them or something? Or something? Um, about eight. Eight. Because yeah. um, remember, the pilots that were flying them originally uh, were sort of um, flying boat pilots. Yes. So and suddenly made made into fighter pilots. pilots, and also the the airfields like on Halfar. Yes. It was blocked with buses and crates and stuff, just in case there was an invasion. So. Uh, they needed to open up a part wide enough for the gladiators to land. And it was hard enough to land a gladiator in an open field, let alone with, with sort of a restricted part. So well, they had a couple of accidents. I mean, Faith Open Charity are part of the kind of the, the Siege of Malta legend, aren't they? Um, yeah. And, and people assumed there was three of them, but obviously there weren't, there were eight. Uh, but presumably, I guess only ever, was there ever more than three flying at one time? I suppose normally, uh, that's, that's how the name came about. Um, they were sort of flown three at a time yeah most of the time even later on even 
uh, gladiators and hurricanes, like when yeah. Peter Kiebel got killed, gladiator flying or two gladiators and, and Peter Kiebel and hurricane. Yeah, so, and, and hurricanes came over. I mean, within about ten days, didn't they, of the of the first bombing on the tenth of June? Yeah, they. Um, the first hurricanes, to, the, the first come, um, hurricanes that came to Malta were actually came overland from uh, from France. That's so amazing, isn't France it? Uh, hadn't fallen yeah, uh, right. at that time. Um, they were supposed to go to uh, the Middle East, but they were uh, also hijacked over Malta yeah. <laughs> as usual. Um, and then the the proper uh, deliveries of hurricanes started coming off the arc route. Yeah, and, and in pretty quick order. Um, it's just a shame that they didn't send over Spitfires earlier, but you know. Well, they couldn't be spared in, in the UK, from the UK initially. They could have been. Well, I found that drama. We were even luckier that they didn't send P-40s. There was a time <laughs> that's, that that's what they were actually planning to, to send. Instead yeah, of no, that's right. That's right. But, you know, I'm looking at these wings here. Obviously, they're, they're rusted and a bit mangled and all the rest of it. I mean, you, you can't restore that, can you? You're just using these as a kind of template. There are some bits that can be used. Really? Other stuff that's being used as templates. It's amazing. It's amazing what can be done. And, and I mean, it's part of what you do here, isn't it? It's not just putting on planes on display. It's also res restoring planes and restoring well, aircraft. You've done got, the, the Spitfire, the, the Hurricane. We've and, got the Tiger Mud and Piper Cup flying. Yeah, so that's great. David's flying them from Lua. Yeah, fantastic. So, this is different. So we've, will this be the fifth plane restored here? Um, no, much, much more. Some of them, like these ones, have yep. been restored to static. Right. And um, others to flying condition. Yeah. And the hurricane is being done to taxiing condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the hurricane's absolutely amazing. Well, I'm now just at the foot of the walls outside the Shara Palace. I'm looking up at the balcony and up at the rooms where Dennis Barnum, amongst others, was taken on his arrival in Malta on, I think it was something like the 20, 21st of April, 1942. He was one of the um, 47 Spitfire pilots and Spitfires to arrive in that third week of April into that mayhem. And you may remember from our reading, One Man's Window, that description of arriving in just as a raid had passed onto Luca, then getting into the dilapidated old bus and heading up to Medina and then having the talk, the pep talk from Hugh Pugh Lloyd and wearing his tin helmet in the middle of the night. Um, he was so scared and terrified by the raids that were coming over. And this is it, you know, it's basically unchanged. The view is still very much the same. And again, there's always that kind of amazing feeling of walking in the footsteps of those who were here all those years ago during the war. I always find it incredibly moving. And I suppose I'm taking pretty much the path that they would have taken, although Dennis Barnum um, got a ride in the dilapidated bus on that particular occasion. All the pilots from Tikali, for the most part, had to walk down to the airfield and walk back again, which is something that I've just done. Hey, it's only about half an hour, 20 minutes, something like that. So it's not too bad, really, in the big scheme of things. And of course, you get the benefit of coming now, where obviously we're not, <laughs> not at war and Malta is absolutely thriving. It's an amazing place. Medina is an amazing place. Beautiful, beautiful city. I suppose if you had to be in an RAF mess in the middle of the Second World War and at the height of the siege, the Shara Palace was about as good as it's going to get. Well, I'm back at the Phoenicia and I'm now overlooking Mars Machette Harbour, which is on the other side of the finger of Valletta from Grand Harbour. 
Um, another important harbour, I'm looking at Schliemer, looking at a skyline that has massively developed since the end of the Second World War. It used to just be a hill there, and now it's completely covered in buildings. And I'm also looking at Manuel Island, which is sort of juts out into Marsmanship Harbour, and specifically at the Lazaretto, which was a quarantine hospital back in the day. Um, former people that stayed there as the artist Caravaggio and, and the poet Lord Byron, amongst many others that have walked through there. It's been derelict for decades, but during the war, it was home to the 10th Submarine Flotilla. So heroes to a man, David Wanklin, Tubby Crawford, of course, Tomkinson of Urge, whose submarine was the wreck, was discovered just outside Grand Harbour, just outside the harbour a year or two ago, and still lies on the bed of the, of the sea, a war grave, I guess. And I was lucky enough to get in there a few years ago and it's an amazing place again you just get that sort of impalpable sense of past and history and you can picture all the submariners being in there um, the scaffolding up there now and super yachts just a little bit further to the left of it so maybe it'll all get redeveloped um, it certainly deserves to have new life breathed into it but it's a good place to stop this little tour around the island and I hope you've enjoyed my little trip um, I know I keep banging on endlessly about the importance of walking the ground but Malta is a big place for me because this is where I first became afflicted in this extraordinary and enduring subject of the Second World War. So cheerio for now.